Good evening. Bellicose words as the United States accuses Iran of a drone attack on an Israeli-connected ship. Frustration as the Delta variant circumvents the vaccine and three members of Congress sleep outdoors to draw attention to the end of an eviction moratorium. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, August 2nd, 2021. Israel's defense minister said today that Iran's alleged attack on a merchant ship in the Arabian Sea last week was a stepping up of the escalation of hostilities by Iran and called for international action. Benny Gantz addressed Israel's parliament, the Knesset. He said that that the drone attack, the drone strike left two crew members dead and was in violation of international law and human morality. The United States, Britain, and Israel have blamed Iran for the fatal attack on the Israeli-linked oil tanker. Iran denies involvement. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken directly blamed Iran. There is no justification for this attack on a peaceful vessel, on a commercial mission, in international waters. Iran's action is a direct threat to freedom of navigation and commerce. It took the lives of innocent sailors. We're currently coordinating with our partners and consulting with governments in the region. And we join others around the world in sending our deepest condolences to the families of the British and Romanian crew members who were killed. Meanwhile, the Iranian government has rejected claims it was behind the attack, which occurred off the coast of the nation of Oman. The Liberian-flagged oil tanker named the Mercer Street is managed by a company belonging to an Israeli billionaire. It was struck late on Thursday northeast of the Omani island of Mazira. Israel's Supreme Court adjourned an appeal from four Palestinian families against their forced expulsion from the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in occupied East Jerusalem. As the families say, they rejected a court proposal for them to stay as protected tenants, but recognized Israeli ownership. The families total about 70 people. Lower Israeli courts have approved the expulsions of the four families to make way for Jewish settlers. Threatened expulsions of the Palestinians fueled protests that met a harsh crackdown by Israeli security forces in April and May and posed a test for Israel's new governing coalition. It led to an 11-day bombardment of the besieged Gaza Strip in May. Israeli, Israeli settlers have been waging a decades-long campaign to expel the families from densely populated Palestinian neighborhoods just outside the walls of the old city. Rights groups said other families are also vulnerable, estimating that more than a thousand Palestinians are at risk of being evicted. And in more Middle East news, Afghan forces battle to stop a first major city from falling to the Taliban as the United States and the United Kingdom accuse the group of massacring civilians in a Kandahar town they recently captured near the Pakistan border. The Taliban has said the allegations are baseless reports. Meanwhile, Taliban fighters continue to assault at least three provincial capitals after a weekend of heavy fighting that saw thousands of civilians flee. And in related news, the Biden administration is expanding its efforts to take in more at-risk Afghan citizens who work for non-government organizations as a Taliban offensive intensifies in advance of the United States military pullout from Afghanistan at the end of the month. Secretary of State Blinken. We've created a priority two or P2 designation, granting access to the U.S. refugee admissions program for many of these Afghans and their family members. We take our responsibility to our Afghan partners deeply seriously. We know the American people do as well. We have a long history in the United States of welcoming refugees into our country. And helping them resettle into new homes and new communities 
is the work of a huge network of state and local governments, NGOs, faith-based groups, advocacy groups, tens of thousands of volunteers. It's a powerful demonstration of American friendship and generosity. Uh, many Americans are asking how they can help Afghan refugees in their communities get resettled. The answer is to reach out to your local refugee resettlement agency. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. But the government of Afghanistan is apparently not accepting America's word that it'll guarantee the government's existence as U.S. troops exit the landlocked nation. Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, has blamed the country's deteriorating security on the United States deciding, quote, abruptly to withdraw its troops. But Ghani added the situation in the war-torn nation will be under control within six months adding the U.S. has pledged its full support. Half the country has fallen under Taliban rule over the last two months, and Taliban fighters are surrounding Kabul, the capital. International medical responders say there's been an increasing stream of wounded civilians to over, uh, overuse understaffed hospital facilities. And back in the U.S., Senator Lindsey Graham has become the first senator to disclose a breakthrough infection after being vaccinated against the coronavirus, saying today he's very glad he received the vaccine, without which his current symptoms would be, quote, far worse. The South Carolina Republican said he started having flu-like symptoms Saturday night and went to the doctor this morning. Graham said he would quarantine for 10 days. The fallout was decidedly bipartisan. Graham attended an event over the weekend hosted by Senator Joe Manchin on his houseboat and attended by other senators. The West Virginian Democrat is said to be fully vaccinated and following the CDC guidelines for those exposed to a COVID-positive individual. And in more COVID news, today the United States finally reached President Joe Biden's goal of getting at least one COVID-19 shot into 70% of American adults a month late and amid a fierce surge by the Delta variant that's swamping hospitals and leading to new mask rules and mandatory vaccinations around the country. There was no celebration at the White House on Monday, nor a setting of a new target. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says she, like most Americans, is frustrated. Here is what we have learned in the last two weeks about the Delta variant. First, the Delta variant is highly contagious. To put this in perspective, if you get sick with the Alpha variant, you could infect about two other unvaccinated people. If you get sick with the Delta variant, we estimate that you could infect about five other unvaccinated people, more than twice as many as the original strain. Second, infections with the Delta variant result in higher viral loads. This means that those who are infected have a larger burden of virus that they can spread to others. Third, those higher viral loads are seen not just in those who are unvaccinated and infected, but also, and importantly, in the small proportion of those who are vaccinated and become infected. Last week, we published data on an outbreak in Barnstable County, Massachusetts, where there were 346 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in people who were fully vaccinated. During the summer, some towns in Barnstable County can have up to 240,000 visitors per month. Those with breakthrough infections had viral loads that were similar to people who were infected and unvaccinated. 
This new finding combined with data from other outbreak investigations and surveillance studies across the country was critical in our decision to update our guidance for those who are fully vaccinated. Since those data were released, several other studies have been released over just this past weekend that have corroborated these findings. Taken together, the Delta variant is different from prior strains. I understand this is all frustrating news and I share this frustration. We continue to learn each day from emerging science and use this evidence to update our recommendations. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. But Dr. Anthony Fauci adds, despite the setbacks, the vaccine is doing what it's supposed to do, save lives. Let's look at the real world effectiveness against the Delta variant. If you look at the three components of PCR confirmed infection, it's 79% in a UK study. Symptomatic infection is 88%. And just as Dr. Walensky mentioned, the vaccines are doing exactly what we're asking them to do when it comes to keeping you out of the hospital, out of serious disease, and certainly preventing your death. Dr. Anthony Fauci, health officials in San Francisco and six other Bay Area counties announced today they are reinstating a requirement that everyone, vaccinated or not, wear masks in public indoor spaces. States and cities across the U.S. have been beating a retreat from the optimistic report. Of just days ago, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said New York City airport and transit workers will have to get vaccinated or face weekly testing. He stopped short of mandating either masks or inoculations for the general public, saying he lacks legal authority to do so. Today, the MTA Port Authority, thank you very much, are adopting that policy starting Labor Day in New York, Port Authorities, New York and New Jersey. That's the first step, vaccine or weekly test. I believe school districts should say today, teachers, vaccine or test if you are in a CDC high-risk area. For public-facing people who are in a high-risk situation, I say there should be a mandatory vaccine policy. And we put one in place in New York State. It is the first state in the nation to do it. In our hospitals, public-facing employees must be vaccinated. Private businesses, I am asking them and suggesting to them go to vaccine-only admission. I don't have any legal authority to mandate. The best I can do is say I strongly recommend that they do that. Uh, We're in the city of New York. Whatever they put in place, we will follow. That's the governor. The UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, is the union representing about 100,000 New York City teachers. It said in a statement, quote, we have advocated since the beginning of the year that any educator who wants a vaccine should have easy access to one. We would support local efforts to encourage more vaccinations, such as through programs that require that those who are not vaccinated get tested on a regular basis. But it's critical that districts come up with plans to make testing available on site and at no cost. What we have not supported is a vaccine mandate. Meanwhile, the de Blasio administration is recommending but not mandating that all residents, regardless of whether they're vaccinated, wear masks in indoor public spaces. The mayor did mandate vaccinations for all new hires. The mayor's decision comes as the city surpasses 
10 million vaccinations, but with stubbornly rising cases of the Delta variant. Mayor de Blasio. We have hit a major milestone over the weekend. Very proud of all our colleagues at Department of Health and Health and Hospitals and Test and Trace and everyone out there who's been part of this amazing, amazing effort. Over the weekend, we passed the 10 million dose mark in New York City. 10 million and growing. The actions we took already, the mandate we put on city workers already clearly helped to encourage action in other places, including states, cities, federal government, and the $100 incentive that New York City started uh, was picked up immediately by the federal government. That's great. Effective immediately. Every single new person hired by the city of New York before they report to work, they must provide proof of vaccination. Every new employee must provide proof of vaccination or they cannot start their new job, period. In a world in which more and more there's going to be a, a reality where if you're vaccinated, a world opportunity opens up to you. If you're not vaccinated, there's going to be more and more things you can't do. We say that, I say that to say, go get vaccinated so you can fully participate in the life of this city because that's where things are going. We want to strongly recommend that people wear masks in indoor settings, even if you're vaccinated. Now, this is particularly true, of course, if you might be around anyone unvaccinated. If you don't know the people you're around, if you're not sure if they're vaccinated or not, or if you know some are unvaccinated, absolutely crucial to wear a mask, uh, even if you are vaccinated. In July, Mayor de Blasio mandated that all city employees must either be vaccinated or face required weekly testing for COVID-19 starting in September. That rule went into effect for city health workers today. The administration is using a few carrots, too, or maybe some lettuce, giving out $100 gift certificates to people who get their vaccine at city-run sites. More than 8,300 residents got the gift certificates over the weekend, doubling traffic at the vaccine sites. The city is also pushing vaccination among school-aged children with about 200,000 kids aged 12 to 17 who have been vaccinated so far. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In news from Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sought to speed up consideration of a nearly $1 trillion partisan, bipartisan infrastructure package today. Schumer promised Democrats will work with Republicans, but GOP senators cautioned that they need time to digest the massive bill. Senator Schumer, followed by Utah Republican Mike Lee. A partisan group of senators has finished writing the text of the infrastructure bill. And in a moment, I'll take the procedural steps to make their legislative language the base of the bill here on the floor. I want to congratulate the members of the bipartisan group for their efforts. We haven't done a large bipartisan bill of this nature in a long time. The bipartisan infrastructure bill is designed to bring our infrastructure up to date for a new century. And that is a significant achievement. The amendment, the substitute amendment is going to be offered and it's going to keep to that commitment, $555 billion, no new taxes, core infrastructure only, and it's great for the American people. The fact that infrastructure is a good thing and that we need it is a different question from whether we can afford the infrastructure plan in this particular case. And that was Utah Republican Mike Lee. Before that was Republican uh, supporter of the bill, uh, Rob Portman. And before that at the top was Senator Schumer. Formally, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the proposal clocked in at 2,700 pages late Sunday after a rare weekend session. 
Schumer has said a final vote could be held in a matter of days. And Congresswoman Cori Bush of Missouri, Ilan Omar of Minnesota, and Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts have been sleeping outside the U.S. Capitol in protest of the Biden administration's decision to allow the eviction moratorium to expire on Saturday. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention ordered the moratorium to shield millions of Americans from eviction during the pandemic. Prior to Friday's sit-in protest, Bush and her colleagues sent a lengthy letter to Congress calling for immediate action on the moratorium's extension. Representative Bush spoke with reporters outside the building. Congress did not um, get the moratorium extended on Friday. Uh, The president and the CDC have not pinned, um, did not make that happen. And so now this is where we are. We are adding to the housing crisis with a mass, with mass evictions. My message is let's get it done. We got to realize the urgency of this moment. People, we do not need to be forcing people out of their homes, number one, because that is human suffering and we shouldn't we shouldn't participate in that. But also in the midst of a global daily pandemic, how do we put force people out of their homes and put them in situations um, where we know that um, that can be deadly? We're talking about our elders. We're talking about children. We're talking about um, people who may be immunocompromised. This is not what our this is not who our country should be. And the, the leaders in this country, those the lawmakers in this country, we have to act. Um, so we have asked for the White House and the CDC to work together and we need an eviction moratorium. We've asked for House leadership to reconvene the House. Bring us back. Bring us back. We need to know that we have the two eight the two hundred and eighteen votes. Let's get this done. And the thing is, these things can happen simultaneously. We need the bill. We need an actual bill, the bill that is on the table um, that uh, Chairwoman Maxine Waters has introduced that would be uh, an eviction moratorium through December 31st. We need to at least start there. I want to see that strengthened. I want to see the, I want to see a moratorium through the end of the pandemic. But we at least need to start with the bill that we have. Representative Cory Bush of Missouri. Meanwhile, the White House claims their hands are tied because the CDC was unable to find legal authority for a new targeted eviction moratorium. Today, the administration asked that states and local governments put in policies to keep renters in their homes. Gene Sperling oversees the coronavirus relief plans for the White House. The president's focus is for us to do everything within our power, or I should say everything within anyone's power to help prevent unnecessary, unavoidable, and painful evictions. Right now, one out of three renters who are behind in the rent are actually protected beyond the federal eviction moratorium by extended state and local evictions moratoriums. The president is asking that all governors and mayors follow suit and extend moratoriums for two months. We have already announced that those with federally backed mortgages may not evict without 30 days of notice. But today the president is going further. He is asking the USDA, VA and HUD and the Treasury Department as well make clear that those who benefit from government backed mortgages or even tax relief related to housing should not seek evictions without first seeking the emergency rental assistance funding that makes 
landlords completely whole. Finally, we are going to do an all agency review to make sure that we understand any potential reason why state local governments are not getting funds out and making sure that we are using all authorities, whatever federal authority that we have, whatever the, is in the power of this president to do to prevent evictions, he is committed to doing. White House Coronavirus Advisor Gene Sperling, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki also stressed responsibility lies with the states. 1.5 billion has been was distributed in June. That was faster. That was greater than the five months prior or the four months prior. That's a good step. It's not nearly enough. And certainly getting the additional funding out there will help keep more people in their homes, which is our goal, which is Speaker Pelosi's goal. So absolutely, we're in touch with local housing authorities and leaders in states to uh, ensure they're moving this ball forward. New York has some breathing room. Separate moratoriums are scheduled to run until the end of this month. The director of organizing for the Right to Counsel organization is Malika Connor. She says the outcome may depend on if you get a housing court judge who's either pro or anti-tenant. The CDC moratorium, it didn't necessarily cover all evictions, right? It only covered evictions for the non-payment of rent. It didn't protect tenants in instances where the landlord was trying to push them out for other reasons. It also still obligated tenants to pay all of that back rent when that moratorium was lifted, which happened this weekend. The moratorium is over on the 31st. August 1st rolls around. Is it due that day? In order to like be legally evicted, the landlord would then need to move forward with actually suing the tenant for eviction in housing court. I don't want to speak universally because there might be some instances of people being harassed or pushed out in other ways, informal or illegal evictions. Those are happening regardless. That's one of the main reasons why it's really important for us to make sure, as advocates, as organizers, as even elected officials, to make sure that tenants are getting that know your rights information and that they're not, quote unquote, self-evicting. The work that we do at Right to Council is about really strengthening and expanding tenants' rights and empowering tenants to be able to fight for themselves, fight to stay in their homes, especially when it comes to evictions that take place through the court system, making sure that they have an attorney by their side to support them in that fight. Biden and the White House should have done something. Congress should have done something. The reality is lawmakers in Washington chose till that that expired. And that should not have happened. Someone should have acted. Fortunately, in New York State, we do have state level protections that protect tenants from eviction currently until August 31st. So even though the CDC moratorium did expire this weekend, New York tenants should still be protected if they fill out a hardship declaration form. They have to declare COVID-related hardship in order to take advantage of those protections. It does cover non-payment and what we call holdover cases. There was supposed to be $45 billion and that certain states are just not paying the money out or New York being one of them, I'm told. In New York, we do have an emergency rental assistance program that was rolled out earlier this summer. The vast majority of folks that have applied for rental assistance through that program have not received any funds. The rollout in a lot of ways has been a tremendous failure. The hope earlier this year was we'd be able to prevent mass eviction by the time the protections expired. But it hasn't rolled out that way. Some of the advocates within our coalition and within the broader housing movement have sent 
several letters to the governor really spelling out all those specific changes that need to be made to the process to make it a lot more simple and accessible to tenants and landlords alike to apply for it. And then just the dispersal of money just hasn't happened. Will people get evicted because the dispersal of money didn't happen? How are the judges going to... If the tenant fills out the form, they are protected from eviction while their application is being processed. It has yet to be seen whether the state agency that's in charge of administering this, what their enforcement mechanism is going to be. How exactly are we going to ensure that once a tenant does fill out that application, are they going to be looking up, did this tenant apply for rent relief? Is their application pending? Is it just a really obscure process? From the lawyer's perspective, are you expecting a tsunami of evictions? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Even though we do have protections in New York, many eviction cases were allowed to move forward. Those protections didn't bar landlords from filing eviction cases. Over the course of this year, we've seen a tremendous increase in eviction cases, like active eviction cases that are in the courts. There's already a tremendous number of cases, hundreds of thousands of cases in New York state courts that will be allowed to like fully move forward. And then that's just going to open up the opportunity for many more landlords to file new cases. One of the things that we really try to emphasize is the right to counsel coalition. Folks use the terminology of eviction tsunami, wave of evictions. But for us, we think it's important to really emphasize that like this is not a natural disaster this isn't something that's inevitable our lawmakers can make choices we just want to make sure that the eviction protections stay in place so that we can avoid mass eviction and that is malika connor director of organizing for the right to counsel organization